Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Midweek at Calvary. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. You'll want to find your way down to verse 18. And while you do that, also mark your Bible in Revelation chapter 3. Because in these two sections of Scripture, we find the first and the final mention of the church in the New Testament. Matthew 16, 18 and Revelation 3, 17. And that is our subject tonight, the Church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we are grateful to have your word for direction, instruction, guidance, and certainty. We trust it, Lord, implicitly. We look to it, Lord, for issues of life and death and reality. Help us, Lord, to conform our lives to it and in areas that we are found to be out of whack, Lord, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Bring us back into line. We thank you tonight and we we give you the credit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, will the church survive? Seems to be a question in some quarters of Christianity today. Now, we know there are critics and opponents of the church who hope it won't survive, but interestingly enough, there are actually large portions of believers who think the organized church won't and perhaps shouldn't survive. I found this article in a major Christian magazine, an article article titled, No Church, No Problem. It says some 20 million people dubbed revolutionaries view attendance of a local church as optional. The subheading is, Church experts wants commitment to the local church congregation to sink lower than ever. He writes, unlike the Great Awakenings, which brought people into the church, this new movement entails drawing people away from reliance upon a local church into a deeper connection and reliance personally upon God. Already, he writes, millions of believers have stopped going to church. So, Barna expects that in 20 years, only about one-third of the population will rely upon a local congregation as the primary or exclusive means for experiencing and expressing their faith. Down will go the number of churches, he writes. Down will go donations to churches and the cultural influence of the church. Is this a good thing, a positive trend, something we ought to applaud? We need to examine this because there are other people with very strong opinions about the church. One of the leaders of the so-called emerging church movement, Erwin McManus, writes, My goal is to destroy Christianity as a world religion and be a recatalyst for the movement of Jesus Christ. As the author of The Barbarian Way, he said, Some people are upset with me because it sounds like I'm anti-Christian. I think they might be right. Who could be upset with that? And so we need to examine in in these days, 
in the postmodern world in which we live, what is the function of the church? What is the purpose of the church? Has the institution of the organized church outlived its usefulness? Ought we be looking for a more efficient and economical model to reach our world with today? Barna says we ought to create a, a personal church where believers create their own form of worship service that meets their individual desires. So we can just have millions of individual churches that just fit in with your lifestyle and personality. Well, there are lots of opinions, lots of critics of the church, but in, in my view, only one opinion matters. The view of he who formed the church, who is the architect of it, who designed it, who died for it, who loves it and gave his life for it. And that's Jesus Christ. I, I want to look at his advice. I want to know what he thinks about the church, what his opinions are and his evaluation. And so our text today says in part in, in verse 18 of, of Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. So we see in that quick passage some very important verbs. First of all, we see the ownership of Jesus, but then the movement, the, the, the action of he will build. And this is the first time the church is mentioned in the New Testament. And it's the word ecclesia. It has Old Testament roots of gathering, the synagogue, the gathering together of God's people. But we see now the introduction onto the New Testament stage of the concept of the church the church universal. And uh, the Bible tells us that God appoints people as overseers of the church for whom Christ purchased with his blood. So I would say this to critics and opponents of the church, to those who have, say, the church needs a makeover, the church needs to be redone or it's outmoded or irrelevant. I would say be careful. I would say be very careful. Now, men, in the days before your wedding, what if someone was critical of your bride. What if they said, well, you know, she's cute, but she's a little bit lumpy. You know, I can see why you're attracted to her, but she's got a few blemishes. How would we take that? How do we appreciate people criticizing our bride? Well, I submit to you that's how Jesus feels, especially because he paid for every flaw of ours. He overcame every failure that we have by virtue of his blood. So I, I am a little bit defensive of the church. I have to admit that to you on, be, on, on behalf of Jesus because I think he cares very deeply for his church and is personally, if you will, offended by the critics of it. And so I would say these criticisms don't go over very well. As we see in our text tonight, he says, he will build his church. It is emphatic. It is final. It is progressive. It is a relentless effort on behalf of Jesus to build an institution called the church. And so for those who criticize it, I say this. Jesus does all things well. The church that he is building is in fine shape tonight. And he intends to complete the process. He will complete it. And the authorship he has begun will not go unfinished. And so we have some very obvious cultural adaptations the church must make periodically. It doesn't mean we all have to meet in the church and here's the steeple and inside are all the, the people. It doesn't always have to be that way. But yet it is the most, by observation and experience, 
the organization of a church, the institution of a church, is an efficient economical way to get kingdom business done. It is not the only way. There are house churches in China that are very successful. But in, in, in the culture such as ours, and in, in the Western European culture where we have freedom of expression, this is a way to be efficient about the things of God's business. And the Bible forbids the breaking up of fellowship. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves as the manner of some is. Further, in Ephesians 4.11, it gives the strict structure of how the church is to be governed. That he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the building up of the body of Christ and the building of the church. So there is a very clear scriptural delineation of how God wants us to go about it. Now, we are given great latitude in that operation. There is not one specific kind of church government specified. God gives us freedom to flex and move with the era and the culture and the society. But yet we, we, we look in the light of the New Testament for guidance from the shadow of the Old Testament. How did God deal with his people in the Old Testament? Now, that's not a strict way of looking at the New Testament, but it, is, it does give us a view. And in the Old Testament, the economy of God revolved around three columns, the temple, the priesthood, and the law. And so we are not under the law. We do not have priests as such, and we don't have a temple. But those principles are still in play because why? They work. We need a place to come for commonality and communion and community and a place for accountability. That's the temple. We need people who are gifted men and women to express their gifts and oversight of God's people. That's the priesthood. And we need the law. We need God's word under the auspices of grace. And again, we are under the strict observation of those three ordinances but they are still functioning generally as a, as a principle because they have been successful. And so we know that the first mention of the church is a very important thing in the biblical law of first mention. The first time the church is given to us is given to us as an accomplished fact in progress. In other words, God sees it being done as he does it. I will build my church. Nothing will stop me. And the gates of hell being an example of the ultimate power of Satan, the point of entry into hell and death, even death itself can't overcome the church. Quite the opposite. The church can overcome death. That has been given to us. And so even Satan's most powerful dominion cannot withhold, withstand what God is doing in these days. That's why Corinthians says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Praise the Lord. We can live forever. And that's the triumph of the church. So uh, Jesus said, don't fear those who have um, the ability to kill the body. Fear the one who can condemn your soul eternally, who's in control of your soul. That's who we ought to be concerned with. So let's take a quick look at a long list of people who have opposed God's purposes throughout history, who have sought to destroy the assembly of God's people. Pharaoh got a head start on the plan. Uh, by coming against the nation of Israel, his nation was plagued, his army was drowned. Herod, and there were several of them in history, um, all were evil, by the way, and they opposed the work of God. Herod the Great crudely used a broad hammer to try to stamp out the Messianic line and failed. 
Herod Agrippa, most notably in Acts, claimed to be God and was eaten publicly by worms. And then Rome, wave after wave after wave, ten consecutive persecutions. Diocletian, again and again, the Caesars came against the church with every conceivable manner of persecution. And yet, the church without any structure or organization today reaches around the globe. And where, I ask you, is the Roman Empire? All the power of Rome, all the glory, all the might of the legions were unable to stamp out the the idea of the cross. The infant church endured the full might and force of the Roman Empire and prevailed. And today, we, we look around and we fast forward to this last century and Adolf Hitler and his final solution, trying to stamp out God's people once again. Six to seven million Jews killed in Eastern and Western Europe. And yet Israel survived even that onslaught. And the state religion of atheism of Stalin and the atheism of Mao Zedong, where are they today? The church exists in Russia. We've been there. The church is is prospering in China, even under the auspices of the communist dictatorship. And so fair warning to the ACLU. We pity the fools. (laughs) They will fail. All those who seek to stop the church will find themselves destroyed. So a lot of concern today about who's in the White House, who's on the levers of the control of the American economy, who's making the rules and the executive orders, and that's all the headlines. Folks, it's not who's in the White House that matters. It's what happens in God's house. That's where the destiny of this nation is being determined. And judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Uh, Administrations will come and go. In four or eight years, there'll be a new president. There'll be a new administration, new drama, new trauma. All of that will go with it. The church will go on because Jesus said, I will build my church. And we should be excited about that. We should be privileged to be part of it. Now, in, in high school one time, I was cut from the high school basketball team. And it was, it was traumatic. It was, it was terrible. But I couldn't go to my left. And so I learned. <laughs> I learned. And the next year, I made the team and got a uniform and got to sit on the bench and everything. And so it was exciting. I was just glad not to get cut. And that's kind of how I feel to be in the church. I'm just glad to be on God's team. And if he periodically gives me the ball, that's just a bonus. Um, seriously, I can think of times that I should, have, I should have died before I was a Christian, overdosed, drunk driving, put my life in danger. Uh, got in the car one time and ended up 60 miles away. I have no idea how I got there. And I know it's by God's grace. So I'm just thrilled to be in the church. I'm in no position to stand around and point fingers, oh, the church this. And people talk very broadly about the church. Oh, the church is this. The church should be doing that. The church fails here. Let me tell you something. The church is a many-layered, many-splendored, very broad organism. And much of it is invisible. Some of the very best things that happen in the church happen by people who do it anonymously because that's how Jesus said to give. 
not to blow a trumpet, not to call attention to yourself, to be as, as invisible as possible. God is at work in ways we can't imagine. And God is all about redundancy. Just look at your body. Do we just have one eye in the middle of our forehead? That would have worked. Okay? You have one contact to put in. That's all you'd have. <laughs> but God does redundant systems. The same applies to spiritual things. He doesn't depend on just one layer. I believe he has a mosaic working. And it's something only he can see. It's a fabulous embroidery that he is weaving in the world today. God's at work in, in terrific ways. So um, that's not to say that we are not going to face opposition in our lifetime. Uh, the criminalization of Christianity is underway. And that's to be expected. In, in the cycle of history, that's how it goes. Ultimately, Caesar cannot tolerate competition. And that's what will happen. Tyrants eventually will trample on truth. And the cycle of human government leads from liberty, ultimately, to tyranny. As George Bernard Shaw once cryptically commented, when you rob Peter to pay Paul, you can generally count on the support of Paul. And that's what eventually happens in a society. And that's what's happening in our culture today. And so uh, we are going to see an anti-God phase be more and more emphatic in America. It's, it's happening in many, many quarters already. But yet there's a huge remnant at work. We should be very encouraged by what the Lord is doing and seek to expand and accelerate and expedite his work. And the great news is he lets us be on the team. He'll give you a uniform. He'll put you in the game. So, but here is how the criminalization of Christianity is playing out. And it, it, it's a standard procedure of principles. First of all, uh, Christianity or Godism is ridiculed, generally widely ridiculed. That happened in Rome. They didn't take Christianity serious at first. They thought it was simply another Jewish sect, and they mocked it. They didn't take Paul seriously, just put him in prison, didn't really worry about him at first. And that's what has happened in the past 20, 30 years in our culture. You can find multiple examples of Christianity on TV generally being mocked and ridiculed, very few examples of Orthodox Christianity being intelligently and, and, and portrayed in a balanced way. Our society mocks Christianity. The token Christian is always kind of the buffoon, goofy, kind of lunatic fringe type of person. That's, that's the first stage. Then they begin to blame us for social ills. And this is the hate crime phase that we're entering into right now, that Germany and Canada have already gone into. There are pastors in Western Europe and to our neighbor to the north who will not read Romans chapter 1 in the pulpit for fear of what might happen to them. That phase is going to creep south in the very near future where they will, the Bible says, they will eventually call good evil and evil good. That's what's going to happen next. And the, but we are commanded not to let our good be evil spoken of. So we must continue to preach it no matter what. And so Christians today all over California are being blamed and protested against for the passage of a pro-family amendment uh, last week in California. That's just, that wave is going to crest right across this country. You can absolutely anticipate that. And then they'll begin to legislate against Christianity. That, too, is beginning to happen, where it's not allowed to be mentioned uh, in, the, in the classroom. Generally, the ACLU has an agenda to remove Christianity from discussion in the public square. That's the tyranny phase. They begin to just remove truth from the uh, conversation of the public square. 
And finally, censorship will eventually lead to persecution. You'll hear much talk about some mutant of the fairness doctrine, which is anything but, but that's what's going to be, be placed upon the broadcast community, and it will fail. It will be, make our lives difficult in the broadcasting world, but it will fail because truth always comes out. Now, the truth sets people free. God finds a way for truth to be exposed. So they can... I don't, I don't welcome the suppression. I don't welcome the heartache. Uh, we, it, it is possible for uh, churches to lose their radio stations to the FCC. I don't welcome that. Uh, but I, I do know the truth always finds a way to express itself. And that's going to happen in this case just as well. And then persecution is the next stage where you're forced to either pay homage to Caesar or perish. That's what happened to the early Christians. And in some form, some way or another, we're going to see that play out, uh, barring a revival across this land, which ought to be our fervent prayer. It remains to be seen how and when or if this will all play out in our lifetime. God's grace can always intervene. But the church is under pressure, some from within, a lot from without. And it's a great mystery how the church can be capable of such great charity and also do such incredible harm sometimes. And here's the solution to it. It's very clear. Jesus said that the, the problem of the church is that in it is a mixture of good and evil. And the Lord said the church age would be characterized by a combination of wheat and weeds or tares. And that the angels can't even really separate it, so why should we try? And this is the reason why the church has done some incredibly harmful things over the course of the centuries, and people point a finger broadly and indict the church. But those are just the weeds at work, being weeds. The wheat is flourishing. The wheat is producing a harvest. The wheat is nourishing the world spiritually. The wheat is doing just what God planted it to do. So don't worry about the weeds. Be busy about planting more wheat. So let's be certain. Uh, those who say the church is outmoded or irrelevant or in need of a total makeover are speaking both presumptuously and out of turn. He is building his church. It is his project. Is he unaware of what's going on within it? Not at all. Is he unable to stop it? He chooses when he will. Is he disinterested in the workings of the church? I think not. How do we know this? Well, the church was established roughly at Pentecost. Uh, the Pentecost where Peter stood up and the Holy Spirit came and gave power, and that was the beginning of the church age, which Jesus predicted in our text tonight, Matthew 16:18. But the church age began in the early 30s there. It, about 60 years later, it had a chance to spread throughout Europe by virtue of the evangelism missionary work of Paul, and through Asia Minor and into Rome. In about A.D. 95, John the Apostle got a vision from God, and Jesus specifically addressed the churches. And there were problems in the church even then, deep problems, wide problems, some good things going on, some evil things going on. Now, if Jesus wanted to agree with this article in Christianity Today, he could have said, you know, this church thing is just not working out, break up in small groups, uh, and I'll be back in 2,000 years. But he didn't do that. He gave each church very clear, specific instructions how to remedy the flaws, how to encourage the flame, and how to continue as the organized church. 
And so if we mark the start of the church at Pentecost and move forward, fast forward 60 years, uh, we see that he is very involved, very specific, and very interested in how the church conducts its business. Despite the failures and even the false doctrine, he loves the church. So let's get a a, a progress report tonight of, of where the church is at from our perspective here in Albuquerque in the year 2008 by looking back quickly, looking around, and then I want to look forward with you tonight. As a case in point, we'll use the Calvary Chapel movement because that's about all I know. Um, 30 years with the Lord, and I don't get out much. I, um, pretty much 99% of my church experience has been in a Calvary Chapel, so I can't give you a broad, sweeping view of the whole church. I'm not a church expert. But I can tell you that the Calvary movement as a marker we can follow from its inception in the mid-60s to today. And um, you know, we often tend to be a little bit narrow-minded. We think our church is the only church. We're the best church. If all churches should be like our church. And it reminds me of the story of the guy who's in, getting a tour in heaven. And as he goes through, people, every tongue, every language, they're worshiping, they're enjoying heaven, they're just having a great time. And the angel's taking him around and showing him the crystal sea and showing him the temple and everything. And then on one hill, he just sees this one bunch of Christians having a picnic all by themselves. He goes... They're not acknowledging anybody and not, not really interacting. He says, oh, well, what, who are they? And the angel goes, shh, it's the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> we, can all be, we can all be guilty of that. that. We're the only ones who are going to make it. We only have the right way. And Calvary isn't the only church. We weren't the only movement in the Jesus era uh, of the 60s. We aren't the only work going on now. But this is what God's doing, and I'm just a sheepdog of the great shepherd in this pasture, and that's what we're responsible for. What happens down the street or around the world is not in our purview. So the Calvary movement started in the mid-'60s. Chuck Smith had a mediocre career for 18 years as a denominational pastor with very little success. I always thought if he could ever just have a church of three or 400 people, wow, he really would have made it then. And he went off to start a little take over a little church in Santa Ana called Calvary Chapel with 25 members and began just teaching through uh, the Bible. And explosive growth ensued. And out of that came a series of Calvary Chapel distinctives that marked the movement. But to rewind in 1969, before I go into that, let's remember that in that time, whether you know about it or were there or lived through it, uh, America was coming apart at the seams in 1969. Politically, socially, sexually, militarily, spiritually, it was the fabric was unwinding. Uh, it was it was very close to the brink of, of disintegration. Authority was being challenged at every level. The so-called sexual revolution loosened American morals and brought on the, the Holocaust of abortion and the plague of AIDS eventually. The political process was in terminal disarray. And this era, the hippies, the yippies, the yahoos, the wahoos, all of them were out there just doing all, all kinds of things, taking every drug you could find and, and just rejecting everything their parents taught them. Draft cards were being burned. Campuses were being um, occupied. Vietnam created the huge rift, the Grand Canyon-sized rift in our, our, our culture. In just a few years, Watergate would create a constitutional crisis that almost brought troops into the street. This country was in big trouble in 1969. And yet, less than 10 years later, we were on the verge of the pro-life movement, and the moral majority, and some good and some bad elements. The Reagan revolution was in the offing in just 10 years. And what brought it back from the brink of utter chaos? It wasn't Gerald Ford. Uh, what, what I would submit to you, in part, it was the Jesus movement. 
It took hundreds of thousands of young people like myself off the streets, off the campuses, off of drugs, and put us into churches as productive members of society. I think the Jesus movement saved America. And furthermore, and furthermore, I think we're the only hope for America today. I don't think the hope, hope is to be found anywhere else but in the churches and the pulpits faithfully teaching the full counsel of God's balanced word. We need to save America, not for our credit, but for his glory. So um, not long after this, this time, Calvary Chapel began to really influence the culture the cover of Time magazines, tens of thousands of people being baptized at Pirates Cove and Corona Del Mar. And the, uh, the, the primary thing that, that changed it was the availability of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ that was spread through the pulpit. And again, I want to emphasize, it wasn't only Calvary Chapel, but we're just focusing on that for, for our, our purposes tonight. Um, we had been marching in the streets and shutting down the country, and all of a sudden, all these kids were put into the, into the church with all this energy, all this discretionary time, and, and all the opportunity to reach their friends. And the distinctives, I'll give them to you quickly, of, of Calvary Chapel that, uh, as a loose affiliation, were these. We were spirit-led, Christ-centered, and grace-covered. That is, that we believed, according to um, a Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, we didn't preach ourselves. We were not building the brand. We, were not to, we had no plan to start Calvary chapels around the world. We just were on fire for Jesus. We just knew that we had been, we had been to the gates of hell. I had been so high, I was afraid I could never come back. And, and God saved me. Uh, all I knew was that I had found it, what I'd been looking for and searching for and was desperate for. That's all I knew. I didn't know much about the Bible. I just knew Jesus was real, and I wanted to tell people. And there were many, many guys like me who, want, who shared this, that, that enthusiasm, that zeal for being on fire for Jesus Christ. We weren't very articulate. We, uh, the first time I ever spoke in front of a crowd, I couldn't believe anybody came. It was unbelievable to me that God would even give me that opportunity. And so... We were, we were spirit-led. Um, we weren't concerned about our names being puffed up. You know, it's funny because people are worried about their image and their name and all that. You do realize we're getting new names in heaven. So all the work you put into this name here on earth, it's like, <laughs> gone. Not going to really matter. So that was our, our approach. Not by might, Chuck taught us. Not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That was, that was the creed. And we didn't use carnal motivation to bring people. We just wanted to tell them what we had found. And it was a, it was a, it was a wildfire. It was an incredible time. You, you, the churches were just packed with people, just simply the simplicity of worshiping and learning, just like sponges about Jesus Christ. And then the priority of the word. That, was a, that is and was a Calvary distinctive. First uh, Timothy, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. We, we believe that God's word is inspired, it is inerrant, and it is unchanging. And it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction. The man of God might be thoroughly furnished. And so we place great emphasis and do upon presenting the full counsel of God's balanced word. Because we all have our preferences. It's kind of like having our own favorite radio station. All preachers have their favorite format. If they, if they were given a chance, some guys would always gravitate to prophecy. All prophecy, all the time. It would be 24-7. Some would all be into uh, Old Testament history. It's all you'd ever hear. But by dedicating ourselves to the full counsel of God's balanced word, people get 
the entire panorama of Scripture. And that's how you become healthy. That healthy sheep reproduce other healthy sheep. And you don't have this single format of this driving evangelism every week or, or, or driving down doctrine uh, in a specific sense, a specific area. So we play all the hits at Calvary all the time. And, so, and then thirdly, the power of prophecy. The power of prophecy. Watching for the rapture. Now, we're all procrastinators. Um, that's why the merchandisers say, buy now, sale ends at 12 midnight. They, they give us this motivation because that is what stimulates us. It, it motivates us to, out of our, our lethargy. And that is, was a, a major feature of what Calvary brought to the table, was waiting for the rapture, bringing forth the possibility of the imminent return of Jesus Christ for which we wait tonight. And uh, Titus 2.13 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that fired people up. And as you you looked around the world and you saw the fact that Israel had been reestablished in 1948 and the atomic bomb and the computer generation and the mark of the beast, it all, the the puzzle pieces began to fit together. And you know what? They're more together and it's more clear tonight than ever. Than ever, we ought to be, as the Bible says, more and more. We shouldn't be becoming more apathetic and more lethargic as we walk on with the Lord. We are getting closer and closer to that perfect day. And we should be more zealous about the things of God than ever. A little side note for you that in 1979, 10 years after our marker in 1969, there was another revolution. It didn't take place in Orange County. It took place in Tehran, Iran the first modern Islamic Republic was formed in Iran. They expelled the Shah, they brought back Ayatollah Khomeini from exile in Paris, and the Iranian Revolution was born. Over 50 American diplomats were taken hostage and held for over a year in Tehran. It it turned the world up. We hadn't heard of them. We didn't know Muslims from Muslims from from Buddhists. And all of a sudden, they, they were front page news. I recall running down to Costa Mesa to hear what Chuck had to say about it. It was was something really otherworldly about it. And then it kind of faded away. Kind of faded away until September 11th. Now we found out these people are very serious. And you know, even now, even after that, the president of Iran will be on TV and you hear the um, translation. He says, we want to annihilate Israel and remove America from the map. And the commentators will come on and say, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> it's very clear. It's the same thing that Adolf Hitler meant with the final solution. He meant to annihilate every Jew on the face of the earth, and he killed two-thirds of them. This is what they intend to do. And this is very clear. Now, here's a little thing. There was this movie back in the, the Jesus days called um, A Thief in the Night. Anybody see that? What a great film. And it uh, talked about the Antichrist and, and the um, Mark of the Beast and people suffering. And they would show people lined up dutifully at the guillotine. And they'd check for the Mark of the Beast. No, and then they would put their neck in and they, they would cut their head off. Uh, what was that? I never really got that until I came across Revolu- a revolution, Revelation 20, verse 4. And it says those believers were beheaded for their witness. That's an odd way to persecute people. I mean, there are a lot more methodical and economical efficient ways to, to kill masses of people. There are gas chambers, and all, especially in, in modern days, but to behead all the people 
And then you kind of put the pieces together. Wait a minute. The Koran says that Muhammad says the Prophet has ordered us to cut off the heads of those who are prisoners and infidels. You go, whoa, wait a minute here. And then you read about uh, Abu al-Zarqawi, the most wanted al-Qaeda terrorist in Iraq, who gave this theological message after killing a man named Berg, and he said he was sanctioned by Islam's holiest text to decapitate his prisoner. You know, whoa, Revelation 24 is predicting mass decapitations of believers at some time in the future. And I'll leave you to put those pieces together. But Christianity and Islam are on inevitable collisions of worldviews. There will be no peace. You've heard about jihad. There's another Islamic word that they use. And you hear Hamas now talking about peace with, with Israel. It's temporary. Do you know that there's a, there's a principle in Islam where you're allowed to lie to your negotiations because they're infidels? And then after you've made an alliance, you can go back on it according to the Koran and kill them? And do you know that President Bush received a multi-page letter from the president of Iran a few years back? And they think that when Islam's, Islamics think that once they warn the infidels and say, give them an opportunity to repent, and they don't do it, they are justified to kill them. And that's where they find America right now. And so we are on a course like this. You do not hear the Iranian president talking about peace. It's not in his vocabulary. He's talking about annihilation. So this should amp up our motivation. And you see these things coming to pass, Jesus said, look up, your redemption is drawing near. The time is coming. So the fourth distinctive I want to bring in the, out of the Calvary movement was the outside of the hippies could be dirty, but the inside could be clean. In other words, uh, 1 Samuel says, the Lord looks on the heart while man looks on the outward appearance. And so Chuck allowed the hippies in, long-haired, holy jeans, dirty feet, didn't matter if you had a clean heart, wanted to seek the Lord. And that was a revolutionary thing. It, it, it packed the pews. And so um, it was no barrier to being a part of God's work by looking weird. We kind of come full circle because now you got the tattoos, you got people with things and piercings and all. And even for us who were hippies, it can be kind of a challenge. Like, why are they doing that? And you've got you've to remind yourself... The Lord looks on the heart. And we're in danger of falling back in the same old trap if we don't remember that. So uh, the, the fifth thing, uh, that, well, before I go to that, so it, open, it opened up the door to guys with no formal seminary training, guys who just wanted to serve the Lord. Chuck would give you a chance. And we, we did go through and study and show ourselves approved, but you didn't have to, to be formally trained to be possibly used. And it, it, it blew down the speed bump for a lot of people just to let them serve the Lord. It's a genius thing. And so it created opportunities for number five, adventures in faith. For guys just to go out and see what God might do. You know, Peter did get out of the boat. For all you want to say about Peter, he walked on the water. He was willing to take an adventure. And the same was true of a lot of, of men and women. They had geographical adventures. Just from the Jerusalem of Costa Mesa, they went out across the face of the earth and planted magnificent works. God did things with guys like Mike McIntosh moved to San Diego. Do you know that, that Mike was on LSD one night and a friend came over to him and said, Mike, I got a gun. Boom! And Mike saw his brain splatter across the wall. 
And for weeks he walked around thinking he had one-third of his head blown off. And he finally walked down the, the aisle of Costa Mesa one night and was healed spiritually and became a, a very useful man of God and planted the Horizon Fellowship down in San Diego. And Greg Laurie, with no formal uh, education, is sweeping floors around Costa Mesa, getting in the way. He said, go teach a Bible study in Riverside. Look what happened. And you, you have Raul Reese, who wanted to kill his whole family with a shotgun and knocked the TV on almost by accident. And Chuck was there preaching the gospel, and he got saved. And what has happened from there? And Steve Mays and Bob, Bob Coy and on and on, John Corson, it goes. Guys just taking adventures of faith and God honoring that faith and honoring his word. That's really the core of it. It's not the personality or the person. God has simply honored his word because it does not come back void when it's unleashed. It accomplishes the purposes for which it has been sent. Take great comfort in that. So musically we reached out. Maranatha music came in. The, but back in the mid-60s, I mean, it was called the, the Evil 4-4 Beat. And there were, there were seminars about how evil the guitar was. I'm not exaggerating in the church. It was a big controversy to have an electric guitar in the church. And you see Paul Clark here, and he is a legend. He's a legend in, in his own mind, of course, but also in Christian music. <laughs> we, we love Paul. But Paul, Paul was a pioneer. He, was a huge, he had a huge impact in the shaping of Christian music with major groups. Richie Furet, Daryl Mansfield. These guys were, were absolutely adventurers in the musical realm, and God used it to attract because we had a musical language in our generation back then. All the, all the Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stones, and you just couldn't go from, you know, um, Grand Funk Railroad to the Bill Gaither Trio. It just would be too much of a shock for any one person. And so we, we reached out aggressively. You know, Greg started doing a Monday night at Costa Mesa. And it was standing room only. Kids would come from all over on a Monday night. And hundreds would get, come forward and get saved. And Chuck said, you know what? We're going to try something bigger. Let's try the Pacific Amphitheater. And uh, I don't know. Greg didn't know. And they had to shut down the traffic on the 405 and the, the road, roads going in. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't get enough people in there. And Chuck said, let's, let's try Angel Stadium. That really freaked Greg out. But Chuck had the faith. They tried it. Twenty years later, they've been filling it three times um, a summer. And a few weeks ago, Greg preached at Madison Square Garden. And God in the Garden brought forth hundreds of people in the heart of Manhattan because of an adventure in faith. Um, here's the thing. I just don't want to look back at that. Oh, that's wonderful. It's cool. God did that. What about now? Well, before we look too far forward, great things are happening right now. Calvary has 51 Bible colleges all over the, the world. There's one in um, Austria. It's a, a former Nazi SS training camp. Now the Word of God is being taught there. The communist headquarters in Hungary is, is now a, a Calvary Chapel Bible college. And uh, I, there are Calvary chapels, 1,400 of them worldwide. I've hiked through the jungles of, of the Philippines and seen Calvary Chapel of Bataan in the middle of nowhere and in the, the, um, the dumps of Manila, in the depths of Africa, on the islands. I, I, I correspond with a pastor off the islands of Africa. There, there's Calvary Chapels being, being born. Uh, th- over a thousand radio stations. Wonderful things. But we can't trust in that. There have been other churches in the past that have had this much and more and become lukewarm or even reprobate. Churches that have their hospitals that perform abortions. Churches that ordain homosexuals today. 
Churches who have wonderful holdings just as grand as ours. So we certainly can't take comfort in stuff and things and an empire. We have to depend upon the full counsel of God's word. And so the question is, what's ahead? There's two paths to go on. It's very simple. We can settle back and relax and say, wow, look what God has done. This is pretty hip. And become an old wineskin, the Bible says. Because God is constantly renewing the earth with the wine of the new gospel. God is always doing a new thing. He's never tied to a system. Or we can remain pliable and flexible and open, and you can begin taking personal adventures in faith. Not just being a spectator and saying, wow, look what God did. But saying, I want to get in the game. I, I want to have an adventure. Are you ready to seize the moment? This is our time, church. This is the time for Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque to take the opportunity and grasp this moment in history. The door is open. What kind of church are we going to be in the next 10 years? What kind of Christian are you going to be? Ask yourself this question. If every Christian in this church served the way you do, gave the way you do, sacrificed the way you do, what sort of church would we have? How many more missionaries would we send out? Would we be able to double the size of our children's ministry? Would we have more funds to do more aggressive media campaigns around the globe where we have opportunity? Would we have a storehouse like Moses did that was overflowing and he had to actually stop the giving if everyone was like you? Or how many missionaries would be called home? How many homeless people would go hungry because our food pantry would be empty? That's a question only you can ask. I don't say it to be, uh, bring condemnation, just to bring introspection. What kind of church do you want it to be? We have some very clear outlines from Jesus in Revelation. That's why I want you to flip over to chapter 3. And at, at, the end, at the end of this sequence of churches, he has given us seven different kinds of churches. There's the robo-church of Ephesus. They're busy, but they've lost their first love of Jesus Christ. They've lost the passion. They're going through the motions. Maybe that's you, just going through and doing, and, but not really. You've lost the zeal. You just don't have the fire. I have good news for you. God can stoke that fire. Maybe the church at, at Pergamum typifies you. That's a compromised church in love with the world. Love what the world can give you financially. Love what the world's stuff can give you. And you want to have it, you want to have it all. You want to have both sides of the fence. And that can happen. It's a compromise. And ultimately, the world will gravitationally pull you down spiritually. Maybe the church at Thyatira typifies you. That's the sexual church. Sex on demand. Our culture wants sex on demand without consequences. That's what the abortion issue is all about. That's why they're killing babies at a ratio of about one in four pregnancies today. Because people want sex without consequence. Demanding it, they'll pick it for it. And even the, even the idea that we might revoke Roe versus Wade brings in a firestorm in our culture today. People will not have their sexual desires abated. That's the church in Thyatira when that idea invades the church. And maybe that's where you're at tonight. Living with a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you need to move out tonight. You need to repent. That's what Jesus counseled his church. Uh, do not continue in that sin. Or the church at Sardis was a dead church. 
you don't even know the Lord. And you attend church perhaps because of pressure or because of people or family or just routine or because it's in your heritage, and you aren't even saved. That, too, can change tonight. Uh, But we want to be the Philadelphian church. I think that's where we want to find ourselves. A church with a little strength but a great God. A church with a little bit on the ball but a big, wide, open door in the whole world. That's where we're at tonight. Are you willing to walk through it? Let me say to you what Jesus also said to the Pergamon church. You can't have it all. You ha- there is a price to be paid for following Jesus. He said you must pick up your cross and follow him. That's painful. That's going to that's cause a stir in your family. You're not going to be able to have all the discretionary time and recreation you might hope if you're carrying around your cross. It's a little bulky but it's mandatory equipment for a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, here are three questions, and then we'll take a brief look around. Are you willing to pay the price? Will you walk through that door? Because what lies ahead for the church today is the exceeding and abundant, abounding promises of God. He wants to do more than we can ever imagine. As you look around what God has done here in Albuquerque, little of this was planned. We have a, when, when, when Skip, we talked about coming out here 25 years ago in, in a hot tub in Lakewood, California, and a friend of mine had the idea to come and manage KKIM radio. Uh, my first question was, why? <laughs> Albuquerque had never been there particularly, wanted to go there, but the Lord had great plans. And we had a lot of, we'd like to, so, well, wouldn't it be cool if God would? He's done more than we ever dreamt. And I submit to you, he is not done. And I invite you to be part of the future. And many of you are already serving, and, and don't grow weary in your well-doing. I want to encourage you to continue and go on and on in the Lord. But some have not tasted of really the sweetness of what it means to serve the Lord. It's the spectator level of Christianity. That's why that door is open to the church at Philadelphia and the invitation goes to come through it and see what's on the other side. When Calvary Chapel really became a factor and it became clear to us, wow, something, this is not just a bunch of hippies getting together reading the Bible. This is going down. And we recognized that God was really doing something. It was kind of sobering. Because uh, the, the thrill of just the... You know, when when we, we first came into the movement, for example, Calvary had 50 of these communes around the world. They were called Shilohs. Some in Orange County had different names, but 50 of them were called Shilohs. And they, they spread from, from um, Puerto Rico uh, to Honolulu. And people just got together, lived, came off the street, lived in houses. Some guys worked for IBM. Some guys worked in a restaurant as busboys. We all brought our checks in every week and gave it to the ministry and were given, given $3 to spend all week. That was our, our allowance. And guys were 20, 30 years old, some. But there was just this fellowship around God's Word. Uh, there was no television uh, except for the Super Bowl. And um, really, it was traumatic. The Broncos even lost that one. That was... That was 77. But uh, I got to tell you, it was a sweet time to be discipled. Just the, the freshness 
the newness of it, uh, the recognizing the limitless horizons God had for us. And now we look around and, and see what God has done, and I recognize, wow, this could be a great platform just to catapult us into the future. What couldn't we do if we counseled and covenanted together to say, you know what, we want to reach Mexico in a way it's never been touched before. We just want to invade Juarez with an army of Christians who just love them. And let me tell you something. We'll have a corner on the market. No one's going to stop us from going to Mexico and giving God's love away. No one, no one is going to compete with us for loving our enemies and forgiving those who wrong us. If you want to begin a revival in Albuquerque, start by forgiving anyone who's offended you. Restore and repair relationships in your family that have been damaged. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord, and he will lift you up. As he's lifted up this movement, not for our credit or for Chuck Smith or for any of the speakers or any of the guys, it's all about the glory of Jesus Christ. And what excites me and what, what really starts my engines is realizing what could happen in the days to come. You know, there was a pastor's conference a few years back, and one of the young guys got up and said, well, time for you guys to pass the baton to us now. And I thought, you'll need to pry that baton out of my cold, dead fingers. <laughs> because I just figured out what it was. I'm just fixing to run with it. And that's where I, th- I think we're at today. Now, we do face a, a, lot of, a lot of pressures in the church. And there's a lot of pessimism about the church. But I hope you're thrilled to be a part of the church. I hope you count yourself as being a gracious recipient of God's invitation to be his bride. Will you let that sink in just for a few moments? Being the bride of Christ? Now, what is really ahead for the church? Well, in the short term, there are opportunities unlimited. You, you, we, you want to serve here at Calvary? We will find a place for you. The first question is, are you willing to walk through that door? The second question is, have you made your calling sure? Do you know what your gift set is? Uh, take time alone with the Lord. Take a long walk with a short list of to-dos and simply ask, Lord, what is it you want me to do for you? How do you want to be served? That's the first question Paul asked. Lord, what do you want me to do? What, where do you want me to go? He is more than capable of letting you know there's ample opportunity to serve the Lord here and all over the world. There are people and places waiting for your individual, unique gift set. So are you willing? Number one. Are you ready? Number two. And will you take the call to action? We can take all the notes in the world. You can have your, all your notebooks and all your outlines and everything, everything organized. But the call to action is to get about God's business. Now, I showed you the first time the church was mentioned in the, in the New Testament. Let me show you the last, Revelation 3.17. Last time that the word church is ever mentioned in the Bible. First two, these, these chapters here is church this and church that, repent and reward and all the church, all church, church, church. And then just follow me here. The church disappears. It's not mentioned again. Now, there are people who try to force it in the chapters 4 and following of Revelation, but here's the Lusco law of biblical interpretation. If you can't find something, it's not there. 
It's very basic. The word church is not there, so just kind of think this through with me. The church is not in the book of Revelation. It's not there. After, after chapter 4, you cannot find it. In fact, the only thing that happens is it's church, 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 church. Oh, a great door is opened in heaven, and I saw a multitude worshiping. Where could the church be? And people are looking under hailstones and looking under seals and trying to find the church under all the things of Revelation. We're gone. That's why we're not there. The, the Lord go, I lost my bride. Where could she be? I just don't know. I, I had her a minute ago here and back in chapter 3. We're gone. That's to say this. Our time is limited. That day is coming. The ultimate destiny of the church is the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, a lot of people last month, I guess, were freaking out when they were opening their 401k statements and all that. And you know, people say, oh, it's going to change the election and change the perspective. People are going to be having um, heart failures. They saw their investments uh, being halved or whatever the case may have been. And we don't rejoice at that. Let me tell you something. There's another opening coming that we should fear, the opening of the books. And the Bible says, even for believers, we will give account for everything we've done in the body. And if we haven't invested in eternity, uh, what people experience with their 401ks will be nothing. To the tears in heaven, we find out our life was wood, hay, and stubble. And we didn't invest in things eternal. We were tied into things temporal. And that will be an awful day, even though God will wipe away every tear. We'll still have that recognition of missed opportunity. The good news is between that day and this tonight, the call to action to you is to make whatever changes you need to make, to rearrange the priorities, to put them in biblical perspective, to recognize the days in which we live, and to be about our Father's business. Will you pray with me? Our Lord, we thank you tonight for this clear direction we have from your word, a positive certainty that you will build your church And not even the gates of hell can prevail against it, Lord, much less the opinion of man. God, we are grateful to be part of this. We take great relief in knowing you're building it because we have but a little strength. But help us, Lord, to use that strength to walk through the door of opportunity we have in these last days. I pray for every believer here tonight, Lord, that they would carefully consider their ways. And bring them in line, Lord, with things that will be productive for your kingdom and bring you glory and bring us pleasure when you say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. Enter now into the joy of your Lord. Whatever it takes, Lord, for us to hear those words, I pray you bring it to pass as we voluntarily surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.